Welcome to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman, the podcast dedicated to helping you build the business of your dreams and live the life you always hoped for, with valuable and fun tips and info to make your life easier and more fun. And now, here's your host, a man who sprinkles metal shavings on his breakfast cereal just for fun, Jason Silverman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. I'm your host, Jason Silverman, and I'm thrilled to share some time with you today. Got to tell you, it's been a totally crazy nutso day here in the uh, Silverman compound. Um, for those of you who know, my, my wife and business partner in Powerful Words Character Development, Dr. Robin Silverman, was a uh, guest expert this morning on the Today Show, which means that the car service picked her up, I don't know, somewhere around uh, zero dark 30 um, god awful hour to be awake. Uh, it also meant that it was just me, two kids, and the dog. Now, I'm happy to say that we all survived. Everybody was dressed, they were fed, they were happy, and I was totally caffeinated. So, uh, so life is good. Life is totally good. Now, it's always so interesting to me, you know, when she's on TV, which, which really happens a lot, whether it's the early show, the Today Show, Good Morning America, Nightline, whatever. We always get flooded, you know, with emails, with Facebook messages, LinkedIn requests, opt-ins from our website, you know, and sometimes even a phone call or two. Now, as, you know, my former self and I guess the, the education that I was trained with, you know, the analyst wakes up and says, it's really interesting, it's important to see who's coming in from which vehicle, so, you know, we can really best determine the most effective ways to connect with them. And what's always staggering to me is that, Right now, there's so, so many different mediums we have. You know, if you think back to, at least when I grew up, you know, and as I'm dating myself, I'm 43, um, or soon to be 43, you know, what do we have? The, the phone, uh, we had mail, maybe a fax machine. Um, there weren't a whole heck of a lot of ways to connect with people. So it's really, really exciting, both as a marketer, uh, as well as just a person living in these times that... You know, we can actually leverage all these tools, and hopefully we're leveraging them the right way. So, in any case, when I looked at my calendar this morning, I was super excited, um, especially because I don't, I don't look at my calendar until after my second cup of coffee, and uh, it was a good thing. You know, today I've got the chance to speak with somebody who I feel is super, super smart. He's the real deal on so many levels, as you're immediately going to see once we get this conversation rolling. In my search to continually bring both interesting as well as super beneficial to you guests, Today's show is going to be right on par. Now, I wanted to introduce my listeners to somebody who plays the game full out. He's been there and he's done that. And most importantly to me, he's got a proven ability to help other people to successfully follow in his footsteps. Now, for the folks who I work with in any of my coaching programs, my mastermind groups, or through Powerful Words Character Development, All-Star Cheer Sites, or Dance Sites Done Right, you know how much I focus on communicating the right way with the right market using the right media, right? Well, our goal is really to uh, help you do just that. So today it's going to be my honor and privilege to share an amazing resource with you. You're going to love today's guest. He has got a ton of valuable information to help you succeed, as well as a fun way to deliver it. So I want you to uh, lock and load, strap yourself in. Today's show is going to be a blast. As I'm sure you already know, I personally am committed to helping business owners worldwide to become more successful, to enjoy their careers more, and in general, make life significantly more fun. Sound cool? All right, boys and girls, it's now that time. 
stop surfing Facebook, put away your phone, your tablet, you know, your whatever you have, whether it's a dog, a cat, a young child, put them all away just for the next couple of minutes so that you don't get distracted at all. You're about to get some great and immediately implementable information, and I don't want you to miss even a second. So, before we officially get going, I want to give you a little bit of background about our guest today. All right. Has anybody noticed that Generation Y, Millennials, Digital Natives, or Gamers, whatever you want to call them, do not act like baby boomers? Well, our guest today is going to help us understand why they act the way they do and how that impacts our business. And quite honestly, folks, for all of us, this is really, really important. This is the part where you sit up and start to take notes because we're, we're dealing with them. We're dealing with their parents. This is, this is really, really valuable stuff. So in other words, how do we manage, market, and sell to a new tech-savvy generation, a generation raised on the information age, tools since childhood? Okay? Generational expert and web pioneer, Brad Zalas is the award-winning author of Liquid Leadership, From Woodstock to Wikipedia, which explores the subject of new leadership styles, mainly how to get the tech-savvy Gen Y and analog-driven baby boomers working together. This is not based on management theory. During the dot-com era of the mid-90s, Brad co-founded the very first dot-com agency to go public on NASDAQ, K2 Design. His company grew from two business partners to 60-plus employees, offices nationwide, four business partners, and a valuation of $26 million. Told you, the real deal, right? Brad was catapulted from entrepreneur to C-suite executive and began developing unique management and marketing models for the first wave of Gen X and Gen Y, raised on video games, computers, and the internet. Today, Brad helps businesses, educators, and individuals close the generational divide by understanding it's a cultural divide created by the new tech-savvy worker and customer. Get ready to bridge the generational chaos. Brad, welcome to The Real Deal. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you for that introduction as well, and uh, I'm excited. Spectacular. So I want to dive right in, but you know, before we get started, for those who haven't had the opportunity to read your books or hear you speak or really meeting you, um, do me a favor, take a second, share your story with our listeners. You know, what are you passionate about? What makes you tick? Who is Brad Zalas? <laughs> that, that could take a while. I, I'm just, uh, you know. It, I, it goes back to my childhood. Uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up with uh, a Hungarian father, very tough, the first generation born in the United States. So he wasn't listening to me talk about uh, my feelings <laughs> or I wanted to watch cartoons on Saturday mornings. He would just bang on my door, open it up and go, get your clothes on. We're going to dig a ditch today. You know, that's how it was. And some of you are laughing because, well, that's how you were raised. So I grew up in this small town in Pennsylvania, and asking my father for a $20 bill, and you have to picture this, I'm a baby boomer, so we're looking at the 60s and the early 70s. In order to get money out of my dad, it was painful in every way, shape, or form. So it was easier for me to start a business at 16 than it was to ask my dad for money. <laughs> Any of you listening, you probably can relate to this if you're a baby boomer. Your your parents uh, had that tough love. You know, how were baby boomers raised? We were raised to sit down, shut up, and listen. And so through the years, that's how I learned. And uh, I had this crazy dream of going to art school, 
And uh, so I eventually graduated from high school. And I had a choice between being a drummer or a graphic designer. And I chose graphic design, went to college for that, and then came to New York City, the Big Apple, uh, right around the, the mid-'80s and worked here for about 10 years and got knocked around a bit. Uh, uh, like you, Jason, you talked a little bit about your past. Uh, you, you know, you work in the corporate world because that's how you make a living. And that's exactly what I did. I did the large corporate meetings for these uh, car companies and also for pharmaceutical companies. And one day, a buddy of mine from college said, hey, let's start a company. And so we started a very tiny uh, internet, it wasn't an internet company at the time, but we started a design firm uh, at that time. And uh, we didn't realize we were competing against 4,000 other design firms. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> one day he comes into my office and he goes, we have to just, you know, we have to become an internet company. And I'm kind of tech savvy and, and smart and it's 1994 and I looked at him and I said, what the heck is the internet? <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw the internet, Jason? I do. I really do. What was your uh, your take on it at the time? Well, I was in business school, and uh, we actually had an assignment to go down to the computer lab, which had these monstrosity computers, um, and we actually needed to gain a pen pal in Japan. And the email would only take, I don't know, like a couple hours to get there. Mm-hmm. And... I remember sitting next to my roommate, who was a uh, computer information um, science major, and he was just enthralled with it. I'm thinking, this is the dumbest thing ever. Why can't I just pick up the phone and call him? <laughs> yeah. You know? It was, why, why does he have to wait hours? I can just pick up the phone. Can't I just call him? Um, so I was officially unimpressed as, as my first, um, my, my first um, introduction to the Internet. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, that was my thought exactly. Because as a graphic designer, as somebody who had worked on some of the largest meetings in the world, and I looked at the Internet as a step backwards. And I really didn't understand that it was not only a broadcast platform, uh, a publishing model, a communication platform. I didn't see any of that. All I saw was, hey, this is really slow. <laughs> Uh, but I went with it, you know, my business partners and, you know, they, they were kind of looking at me like, well, we have to do this. This is the next big wave. And so we went out and we bought a laptop, which was a newfangled device back in 1994. And we made a canned demonstration that made it look like you were on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe you remember this. If you went into anybody's office and you tried to plug in your laptop to a phone line, it would blow it up. <laughs> so you, you, we couldn't do that. We had to pretend we were on the Internet. We put a Netscape browser in there. We made it We made it look like the real deal. So we were running around, and we're showing everybody, this is the Internet. And we were selling all kinds of other things, like we were selling the, the traditional printed pieces and, and collateral pieces and things like that that a design firm would do. But as soon as we got to that Internet part, they kind of their eyes would glaze over and nobody paid attention to us. And this went on for about three months. And I know some of your listeners are probably thinking the same thing. It's very frustrating in this day and age to try and find where the, 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 the traction is in your business. And we were doing the same thing. We were taking on these small jobs just to survive. 
And all of a sudden, we're running around with a laptop, and nobody understood what we were talking about. Until one day, we sat with an older executive who had gray hair, and after our pitch, he looked at us and he goes, could you guys create uh, a website or a CD-ROM hybrid that could launch to a proprietary browser that would take people to a password-protected section of our website? Could you guys do that? And what would you do in that situation, Jason? You'd be pretty excited, right? I'd be thrilled. We sat there in stunned silence for about 10 seconds <laughs> because we didn't know how to respond to that. Because three months of everybody going, I have no idea what you're talking about, to suddenly somebody going, hey, we want a CD-ROM hybrid. And <laughs> we finally stood up and go, yes, we can do that thing you just said. Now, <laughs> we had programmers. We knew we could do the interface design. We knew we could build this. But... We, we really couldn't find anybody in New York City that understood what this is. And all of a sudden, this happened over and over again. As soon as we walked in, and it was an older executive, they understood what the Internet was. If they were under, let's say, 55, under 60, let's say, they didn't know what the Internet was at that time. Remember, this was 1994. Right. And it started to become such a habit that it didn't matter if they were male or female executives they knew what the internet was, we actually started asking the question, hey, how come you know so much about the internet? And the response was so simple and astounding. They would all say the same thing. They're grandkids. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. How many people right now listening are texting and using cell phones and smartphones simply because it's the easiest and best way to reach your kids or your grandkids. Because baby boomers and even some Gen X, you guys, we weren't really, what's the point? I'd rather get on the telephone. Exactly. You know, I'd rather get on the phone. It takes a second and I'm done. But now look at texting and all these other things. It's usually because of our kids that we're doing these things. I do a lot of these things because of my nephew. It's easier for him to text. So this all started back then, and I, I'm right on the edge of it, tearing my hair out trying to figure this out, this paradigm. What is this about? And what I started to do is analyze not only the landscape but the behavior. And what happened is I started to notice that as we were selling and pitching to these different companies, the executives at the top, if they had grandkids, didn't matter if they were male or female, they understood the Internet and all the things that it could do. All this new technology. At the very bottom, entry-level employees coming right out of college, getting their first or second job, understood what a T1 and a T4 line was. They knew the difference between the Internet and a CD-ROM or the World Wide Web. They knew what digital archiving meant. And they did it every day because they were doing it in college. But guess what? In the middle of every organization, there was this huge technological revolution going on, and nobody knew it. Hmm. It was like this thin layer where nobody knew. But a year later, those same managers, those same buyers who had no clue what the Internet was, they were calling us up in droves because now we hit critical mass. People were buying and buying big. We were doing some of the biggest websites in the world back then, like $250,000 websites. Uh, we were doing the Gary Kasparov chess challenge between Deep Blue's, uh, IBM's Deep Blue computer and Gary Kasparov. We were doing live events. We were building websites for American Express. Uh, so, it, I mean, it was, it exploded right around 1995.
Got it. Mm-hmm. Got so, it, got it, got it. So I'll tell you a little bit about how I got to where I'm at today. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let me let me ask this question then. Yeah, how were you able to to really really sell the internet services when people didn't know what it really was? I mean, I know you kind of touched on on some of the ways as far as like the the presentation, but can you can you go a little deeper into that? Sure. What it really required is that we could show very quickly with just one or two click-throughs exactly what we were offering. Like, I don't know if you noticed today, every single website must have either a promise statement or a video or both. And that video has to show what you do in less than two minutes. Uh, it's, it's amazing how discursive we've become. We jump from one thing to the next. And I started to learn because I was doing a lot of work with pharmaceutical companies as well. Pharmaceutical companies wanted to put up a page and a half or 30 pages about their drug, and nobody reads that. Right. So in this day and age especially, you begin to realize that people are jumping from one thing to the next. If you have more than a page and a half of information on your website, people are going to leave. So your website actually becomes an online brochure. That doesn't mean people are going to visit it every single day. What it means is they're going to visit, get what you're about, and call that phone number or email you. That's it. We're done. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. It's, it's not like it was like 10 years ago when you, you had a website and everybody came there and it became like the mecca for your business. It truly is an online brochure. Uh, I was called in at Hershey a few years ago. At Hershey... Uh, I don't know if you know this, their interactive division, they put all their products up on this website. And they asked me, well, what do you think? We have a problem. People would come to the website once, and then they'd leave, and they'd never come back again. And I said, well, you don't have any interactivity or incentives on your website. And they're like, well, what do you mean by that? I said, you have one of the fanciest flash-driven brochures I've ever seen. And what do you do when you read a brochure and you're done with it? You throw it in the garbage. Right. So with them, I, I suggested you need to create interactive uh, like uh, moments for people to, to interact with Hershey products. I said, why don't you have a contest with mothers and sons against uh, you know fathers and daughters, and you cook different products, and you show the recipe, you videotape it and everything on a Friday night using Hershey products. What do you think of that? And the number one winner gets a free trip to Hershey Park and four days in Hershey, Pennsylvania. They're like, that's really great. <laughs> See, we're in Web 2.0, so you need interactivity on your website. How to get in touch with you quickly? What do you do immediately? I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I, I actually, this is this is going to be really important, I think, for, for many of my folks. Um, and, and me as well. Now, you stated in your book, Liquid Leadership, that there were three major things that you found influenced the behavior of the younger generation. Um, yes. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think this is going to be really, really important. All right. If you're a parent, a teacher, uh, an educator, a business person, a business owner, buckle up. Because this is the one thing that as I, my research started to you know, come together, even blew my mind at this point. I'm still blown away by this today. But there are three major influences that changed the behavior of anyone born after 1977. 1977 is the magical year that everything changed. Jason, what was the number one blockbuster movie in 1977? Star Wars. Absolutely. What was number two? 
<laughs> Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> okay. Now, this is a pure baby boomer movie, Smokey and the Bandit. But Star Wars, and this is the big key, changed every single thing about the way we thought about technology as well as how movies got made. Uh, the astrophysicist Michio Keiko, he says that Star Wars initiated a paradigm shift in our thinking. And what it actually did is this. Now, some of you will argue with me. If you're a baby boomer, that means you're 50 and older. Or you're a traditionalist, that means you're about 66 and older. You will argue with me and say that, well, it was Star Wars or Buck Rogers that influenced our thinking. And I would say you're partially right if you lived in an industrialized nation. But Star Wars was the very first movie, science fiction driven, that was seen all over the world, whether you were in Guam or Canada, or you were in Japan, or you were in the Philippines, or you were in South America or Africa, you saw Star Wars. And what it did is it put a ubiquitous picture in our minds of science fiction was now becoming science fact. And you can argue with me about this, but here, I'll give you uh, a big leap here. Everything that you have seen in the last 35 years that was in Star Wars, we have today. Except, you know, of course, we don't have a Millennium Falcon, but we do have lightsabers. We do have... Uh, you know, we have robots, we have cloud technology, we have pads, and uh, we even have holograms. We have a lot of the technology that you see in Star Trek as well. We have all the, the little disks, we have uh, bio beds and things like this, all because we saw a picture of it back in the 70s when science fiction started to become science fact. Hmm. And by the way, the top blockbuster movies over the last 35 years the top seven have all been science fiction movies. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was usually westerns or detective thrillers. But today, blockbuster movies are all science fiction driven. That was the first thing. You have a generation that's been raised to believe that science fiction is science fact. That's number one. Number two, something else happened in 1977 that's pretty important. That's when the video game station came inside the household. Magnavox and Atari. Do you remember any of those uh, early games? Owned them all. Yeah? Which ones were your favorite? I was a major Atari fan. Nice. Well, uh, we had Pong. That was it. If oh, yeah. If you're listening, Pong is about as simplistic as you can get. Now, some of you are like, oh, and they created a multitasking type of brain. Video games have actually changed the brains of the next generation. Hmm. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How do you learn in a video game? What do you learn? Well, gosh, it's all decision-making. It's um, <laughs> ramifications for mistakes. Right. Well, I'll give you the quickest uh, thing that I've noticed about video games, and that is this. First, speed is paramount. You don't read a manual. You jump in and you leap in and you make mistakes. You make as many mistakes as you can because that's how you learn. What did baby boomers learn? We were taught if you screw up, your career was over. You had to sit down, shut up, and listen. That's how I was taught, and I had to listen to an authority figure, a teacher at the head of the classroom, give me permission to move forward or to pass to the next grade. 
And I took that, that linear way of doing work out into the work world, and I learned that I had to work hard, study hard, get ahead, hope my boss noticed me, and by the time I hit 40 or 50 years of age, I would get the corner office a great salary, and young people would look up to me because of my wisdom, my knowledge, and all my seasonality. And how's that working out so far? And <laughs> not, not, not so well. Right. Because the next generation was taught differently. They were taught that anybody in their group is not an authority figure, but a peer. Okay? When you're in that video game, you look for the mentors, you look for the politics and the rules intuitively. You don't read a manual. You learn it intuitively. You pass the test. You storm the castle. You kill the trolls. You save the princess. And guess what? After you do all that, forget everything you just learned because at the next level, all the rules change. Right. Does any of this, does any of this behavior sound familiar? Absolutely. Right. But that's not the only thing that changed us. The third and final piece of this puzzle was child-centric parenting and child-centric teaching. Now, I don't know how your 18th birthday went, Jason, but my 18th birthday went something like this. My father walked into my bedroom, looked me dead in the eye, and he says, All right, according to the law, you're some kind of man now, and therefore you have three choices in this household. You can A get a job and start paying room and board around here, or two, you can go to college and I'll try and help you pay for it. And I'm like, Dad, what's the third choice? You can move out. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, but Dad, he's like, my house, my rules, buddy. Oh, and by the way, uh, don't tell your mother we had this conversation, okay? <laughs> All right. You know, and that, that actually happened. And my father did not want to hear anything else. It was tough love. But a lot of young people were taught differently right around 1977, child-centric parenting came into the household. And guess what happened? Parents were having conversations with their children that were more adult than ever before. The hierarchy was flattened inside the household, and parents were looking their kids in the eye and going, Hey, Billy, should Mommy and Daddy get a divorce? You know, or are they going, hey, we're going to buy a car, champ. What do you think? Should we get the blue or the red one? You know, I mean, they were being brought into these conversations. And uh, they weren't told to move out of the house. They weren't uh, kicked out at 21. Uh, and a lot of times they were given a brand new car. I mean, not everybody. I'm just, you know, generalizing right now so we can make a character of this. But a lot of them at 18 uh, either had uh, a car paid for or the college taken care of or you know, all these things that boomers did not have, we had to struggle in life. So guess what happened? When they went into the school system, they were also encouraged to call their teacher by their first name. So now they're calling their teacher instead of Mrs. Rhodes. It was, hey, Becky, I don't really want to do math today. Can I do art? <laughs> so they could cherry pick their own curriculum. And they could do the things that they wanted to do. Does any of this sound familiar to anybody listening right now? <laughs> All too familiar, I'm sure. Now, some of you, you know, you run karate studios and dance studios and things like this, and I as well take the martial arts, and I've noticed that the kids who do these kind of after-school activities, they have a discipline that a lot of the other Generation X, digital natives, millennials, whatever you want to call them, gamers, 
uh, you can also call them, uh, the, the kids who take these kind of classes have a different mental acuity than the ones who do not. And I'm sure you've noticed that, Jason, uh, in your own work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's quite honestly why I feel that our, why our work is just that important. Um, we always found that when the public school teachers would come to our academy, they would say, oh, it's always easy to spot one of your students. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'll give you a good example. A good friend of mine, uh, his name is Rick Duffy. He's okay with me using his real name. Uh, <laughs> Rick teaches at a Catholic school and a public school. And for some strange reason, uh, both schools wound up on the same field trip. And this was funny. The Catholic school, the kids were, uh, they were asked to call him Mr. Duffy. Now, the public school kids were called, told to call him Rick. Hey, Rick, how you doing? And <laughs> you can imagine this for a baby boomer. This uh, probably is making some of you uh, squirm. Yeah, yeah, it's a little squirm going on. Well, here's what happened. Evidently, they, on this field trip, they, they, it was very windy, and a tree was about to fall over. And my buddy Rick, he yells out, move to the left. Just move, move, move to the left. You know, he's very in a panicked way. Now, the Catholic school kids moved. They didn't question. They just moved. Yes, Mr. Duffy, yes. The public school kids looked at him and said, why? Why should we move? <laughs> See, the difference in the, in the discipline and the hierarchy is gone. The hierarchy has been flattened. And it's been due to this child-centric parenting and child-centric teaching. And now they came into the workforce, and a lot of people, you've all heard this, uh, a 20-something would walk right up to the CEO of a major corporation and go, hey, buddy, I can show you how to run this company, because uh, I learned it in college. Uh, because they don't see authority figures, they see peers. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Really, really interesting. I actually want to jump into really how we can leverage this because this is, you're at the meat right now. You really, really are. Um, how do you feel like a person in today's business environment can benefit from, I guess, Gen Y, what, what Gen Y has become? Well, it's very interesting because you probably have noticed that they don't watch TV like we do. They don't do anything like we do. So understanding Generation Y is really about hiring a Gen Y to do, say, your marketing, uh, to reach them. Because they're on Twitter. They're on Quora. They're not on Facebook anymore. They've moved past that. They're multitasking. They're chatting. They're texting. How do you advertise to that, that next generation? <laughs> and uh, how many of you grew up with Cadillac? And what did Cadillac represent to you? And I'm going to use a large brand that we all know so we can really identify with it. Uh, Cadillac hired a 28-year-old at an ad agency to handle their marketing. Hmm. Uh, what was Cadillac when we were growing up? Cadillac was the car my grandfather bought. He couldn't wait to buy a Cadillac because it said, I've arrived, I have money, I can golf every day because I'm retired, 
and he would buy this giant boat. And, you know, <laughs> about eight of us could fit in the car. And it was funny. My grandfather, when he hit 65, I think he lost his mind or something because he started to wear white patent leather shoes and a white belt with khaki pants and a golf shirt every single day because he was golfing. Now, we, we, we lived in Pennsylvania. There was no reason to dress like this. You know what I mean? Uh, stick to the flannel shirts, Grandpa. So what happened is he wanted a Cadillac so bad he bought it used one. But it wasn't like a second hand. I think it was fourth or fifth hand. And the electric started to go. So you get trapped in the car sometimes. <laughs> so Cadillac was getting this horrible reputation as the last car you bought before you left Earth. It was your grandfather's car, right? Absolutely. So for years they have struggled. For over 20 years, sales have been... Really horrible. And this 28-year-old came along and said, we're going to do things differently. We're going to show you just how throaty that engine is. We're going to have you sit in the car, and, and you can take this on a test drive. And then they, they would go around the world and film the Cadillac being used in these really unusual places by young people. And then they would get Justin Bieber to buy one and things like this. And guess what happened? Sales at Cadillac are up 37%. <laughs> so you're looking at, you know, we were taught that you don't listen to young people until they've earned the right to be listened to. And today that model has flipped because they're the ones using all the technology. They know how to spread the word about your business very quickly and very simply with other people of the same generation. That's important. Very, yeah. very, very important. Right. You, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say that it, it, it really does bring up a good point. Now that I think about the, the recent Cadillac commercials that I've seen, you know, I don't remember for the last 10 years seeing a decent Cadillac commercial. Right. I mean, I know they tried using the um, – they had an attractive female redhead for a while trying to, uh, to boost uh, female sales of Cadillacs, but I don't know that that did what it was supposed to. This – this now is, is, is clearly aimed at a different demographic, so that makes sense. Well, that's the thing. I try to always talk to corporations uh, that I, I speak with and coach. Uh, I work with Dell and MasterCard and, and big brands like that, but I also work with small individual companies as well. And I tell them, I go, are you ready to hand your, your company off to the next generation? Are you ready to create legacy? And you're not going to be able to create a legacy if you're standing there with your arms crossed looking at the next generation going, hey, when you get tired and get a mortgage and buy a minivan and <laughs> get like us, then I'm going to listen to you. Uh, they're in a very different paradigm in their head. They don't think like us. They challenge uh, all the, the things that we were taught about aging, about life and living and the life-work balance. Um, when you were on Wall Street, uh, Jason, weren't you told that you could not leave until all your work was done at ten o'clock at night? Well, there was no, there was nobody left. You just, you just, you were there, and then you left when when you were done, not right. when you felt like it. Exactly. Well, that model comes from the industrial age, where when you went to work, you actually did your work, and then when you went home, your your location determined your tasks. So when you were at home. You're eating dinner, playing with the kids, or hanging out with your wife. And the room also determined what you would be doing. If you were in the bedroom or the kitchen or the living room, you knew exactly what you were doing. And this is the way it was for thousands of years, even before the Industrial Age. But then, 1977, 
1984 are very important dates because that's when the video games came into the home, that's when the computer came into the home, and now the boundaries and the time and the work-life balance collapse. And now you can play at work and you can work at home. And so there is no more linear, well, I'm at work, I have to work, and now when I come home, uh, I get to rest. That, that's gone. And to give you a rough idea, everything that I've laid down changed in 1977, all those things, to give you an idea of how much of an impact that was, when I was on Wall Street during the dot-com boom, and those hundreds and hundreds of companies were going public right around 1995 into 1998, 98% mm -hmm. of those companies were run, owned, and operated by 20-somethings. Hmm. All of them had been born around 1977. Interesting. That's how big of an impact this has had. That's crazy. Yes. I, you know what? You, you talk about you've got seven laws or guiding principles. Um, would, you, uh, would you take a sec and just kind of go through those? Because I think those are going to really help to, you know, for people to understand what makes up a liquid leader. Sure. Well, as I was building my company from scratch, I started to realize the old paradigms of management weren't uh, holding water anymore. People would kind of tell me off, or they'd leave, or they weren't inspired. So these principles that I'm giving you are actually based on my model that I created for uh, motivating and managing this next generation. And this model has actually won an award. So I'm going to take you through this real quickly. There are seven guiding principles for a liquid leader, and that is, number one, you really should be placing your people first. Because the people on the front line, they're the ones with the ideas nowadays. They're the ones who are uh, capturing all that new software and applications and disruptive stuff that's coming down the pike. The second law is create an environment where it is safe to tell the truth. i got to tell you, Jason, I have friends who call me up from corporations and they're complaining. They say, we have a piece of software we've been using for 10 years that is horrible and we need to get rid of it, but we can't get rid of it because if we say something, we'll get fired because the vice president knows the owner of the software company. And this is a classic example of an environment where you can't tell the truth. Now, if you're in an environment where you can tell the truth and it, you're not, they don't have repercussions, but you can actually sit and discuss things, guess what happens? More work gets done. Number three. I believe you should nurture a creative environment because things are changing so fast, you really do need to be creative at all times. Number four, I believe in the supporting of reinvention. You don't know how many businesses have been in business doing one thing for a hundred years and suddenly they turn around and they have to reinvent who they are today because that technology that they used for a hundred years doesn't exist anymore or is not being used the way it used to be. Think uh, buggy whips. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Studebaker used to make buggy whips, and then they became a car company, and then they went out of business because, well, they were too innovative too soon. But you get the idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Number five, I believe a leader must lead by example. Uh, uh, we see too many leaders today who are twittering <laughs> and doing things they shouldn't, uh, and uh, that's not a leader. Uh, number six, a leader takes responsibility not only for their actions, but for the actions within the organization. 
which means everybody needs to get trained and shown exactly how to do things the way that you want done in that company. And number seven, I think it's very important for us to leave a lasting legacy with our companies, our businesses, and our communities. Spectacular. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I understand why I won an award. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I had I had young people who were only three to seven years younger than me, and I'm a baby boomer, so I'm looking at. I didn't see anything different at the time, and I'd say, "Hey, uh, could you get this project done?" And then they'd get it done in two hours and have their feet up on the desk. And they, I go, "Did you finish it?" And they go, "Oh yeah, it's in your inbox." I go, "Well, why didn't you come to me?" Well, why should I? And then they would say stuff like, "Well, I'm done with my work. Why do I have to stay here for another six hours?" <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I literally, I can tell you a hundred stories where I'm tearing my hair out. I'm going, are you kidding me? I had one young man, he sent me an email. He says, uh, he comes bursting into my office at 1.30. He goes, where were you? We had a meeting at 11.30. And I said, really? I said, when did you tell me about this meeting? I sent you an email at 11.15. And, and now, uh, you may not know this, but back in 95, you could not. I worked on a Mac, you know, on an Apple computer. I could not leave my port for my email open. Or I'd freeze my Mac. So he was banging on the door. Where were you? Why didn't you get my email? I said, you sent me an email. Now, did you confirm that I got that email? Why should I? I sent it to you. And I said, and by the way, where do you sit? He sat right outside my office. All he had to do was knock at the door and go, hey, Brad, we have a meeting at 1130. Could you, could you make it? <laughs> it? It was like I couldn't believe what was going on. I could either... Uh, tear my hair out, uh, you know, have a stroke or a heart attack, or I could turn around and go, okay, there's something in the Kool-Aid, and I, and I think I figured it out, and I put it in the pages of Liquid Leadership from Woodstock to Wikipedia. And uh, if you can, go get a copy, because I, I guarantee you it will help you <laughs> figure out how to motivate, manage, and, and reach this next generation. Well, you know, I got to tell you where I, what I think is going to be really interesting uh, for so many of the the clients that I've got. Um, many of their their junior staff members mm -hmm. are really in this age group, so I would say I get between ten to fifteen questions per week. How do you, I don't understand how to deal with my staff? I don't get them. I don't understand them. So let me at this point let me let me ask the question: Where where can folks get that book? You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can walk in and ask for it, or you can just order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And I also have it available on Kindle, Nook, and any Sony e-reader as well. So you can get a digital version as well. Now, is there if folks want to get in touch directly with you, how uh, what's the best way? Is there a website? What's the best way they can find you? The best way is go to www.liquidleadership.com. That's one word, liquidleadership.com, and all my information is there. And I'd like to offer a special free report to all your listeners, if that's okay, Jason. Absolutely. Please do. Sure. I'd like to offer a free report called What Every Business Must Know About Generation Y. Just send me an email to brad at liquidleadership.com. That's brad at liquidleadership.com, and I'll send that off to you immediately. And it'll give you the not only the three uh, behavioral traits, but it'll also show you how you can manage better and how to reach that next generation because they are not at all like us. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
One one question that I think uh, is going to be important for me at least um, of those seven laws, uh, would you say that there is one that you found to be the most uh, important to you in your experience? Well, I actually, the first three I feel is, uh, in combination, and that is you place people first, you create an environment where it's safe to tell the truth and nurture a creative environment, and I'll tell you why. Whenever you ignore people and you're in a, a situation where the boss is always barking orders, guess what? You have a lot of anxiety in that office or in that company, and people cannot do their best work, and guess what? They don't give their heart over to the company. But when you lower anxiety, guess what? Creativity goes up. Innovation goes up. Productivity goes up because people actually want to give of themselves to your product or your service. They become passionate about it because you're passionate and you respect them for it. So I'm a big fan of creating a truthful environment and a creative environment. I think that's fair. One question I, I, I love to, to wrap up with is, you know, I've got a lot of folks on this call, on this, on this podcast that, you know, whether they're just beginning their journey as an entrepreneur or they ha haven't yet reached the pinnacle of their success, and even some who are really, really rocking it out of the park, um, I always like to take a successful entrepreneur and, and, and give them and ask them for one really important piece of advice. So if you could just give people one and only one piece of advice to help either their business or just more importantly, to help them to live a, a better life. What would that piece of advice be? For me, it would be this. I grew up in a very small town, and it's a farming community, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and I had a very strong vision of what my future would be, what my business would look like, the, what I would be doing in my life. And something happened to me that changed the course of my life. At 17, I'm captain of the drum line, okay, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having fun. I'm a teenager. I'm, I'm started, I have my own business and all this, and I break my ankle. Now, you're probably sitting there going, oh, how did he break his ankle? Well, I broke it on the football field during band camp. Just want to let you know that. So, <laughs> okay. Exactly. And so it made me sit in my bedroom and question life as I sit there on painkillers. And I learned this, and I've had to do this all the time, over and over again. Adapt. I mean, we, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, we already have a mixed bag of tricks, and that is you're, you have a stubborn vision, you know what you want to do, you're going to work hard, you're going to get to that. But the one thing is you've got to learn to adapt, because when I first saw the Internet, I wasn't impressed with it. But at least I stayed open to it. And I adapted and shifted my vision over to what would an internet company look like instead of a design firm. And that has helped me many, many times in my career. Okay, I have this great vision. What would change it just ever so slightly to make it a little bit more successful? And that's the best advice I think I could give. That's fantastic advice in general. For, for really for for life as well, I and mean, you could use that in relationships. You know, um, it, you're spot on. That's fantastic. Thank you. So, Thank you so much, Jason. I yeah. appreciate that. So, folks, what I want you to do: um, take two seconds, and obviously, I'll have this on the show notes for you. Um, but go up to you know at least as 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 a 42 year old, what I would do um, is I'd go over to Amazon and I would just order Brad's book right now and 
you know, get it, read it, absorb it, read it a couple times. Um, you know, if you've got coaches, if you've got athletes, whatever you have, it's really important to understand why they're doing what they're doing rather than just mm-hmm. getting irritated about it, right? Right. Well, Jason, can I jump in just one second here? Please do. I wrote this as a business book, and it astounded me that something, a byproduct, started to happen. I had women executives coming up to me after my presentations in tears, thanking me because my book helped them understand why their 40-year-old son or daughter was playing video games and riding skateboard to work. They couldn't understand why they thought they had failed as a parent, and here's my little business book that, you know, I just was writing it for the business market. Suddenly, parents were picking it up as well. So I, I'm very humbled and touched when they come up to me because it, it just blows my mind that this was a byproduct of, of the work I do. Well, again, usually anything that's successful is successful across multiple planes. So that, that doesn't surprise me at all. All right, this is fantastic. Brad, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I, I know how I know how crazy your schedule's got to be. So it means the world to me that you take some time and, and share some of it with us today. Great. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got today. Thanks for tuning into The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. For more information about private coaching or to see if you'd benefit from one of my mastermind groups, visit me at www.jasonmsilverman.com. I look forward to helping you achieve the success that you truly deserve. Until next time, let me leave you with this. Get out there and be the real deal. Set a goal. Make a plan. Work like hell towards it and achieve the success that you truly deserve. Now's the time. Get out there and make it happen, folks. Go get them. This has been Jason Silverman, and I hope you have a spectacular week. You've been listening to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. To access the great resources mentioned in the show and for information on coaching and mastermind group opportunities with Jason, please visit jasonmsilverman.com.